Hey, everybody, this is episode 51 of Artist Soapbox. Hello, and welcome to Artist Soapbox, a podcast featuring triangle area artists talking about their work, their plans, their manifestos. I am Tamara Kassane. Today's guest, Juliana Finch, sounds the way a good bourbon tastes. A Georgia-born, North Carolina-based singer-songwriter with strong Americana roots, Juliana earns her spot in a long tradition of storytelling songwriters with a sultry, soothing voice and carefully crafted lyrics. For the past few years, Juliana has been a full-time artist, creating the Bedhead Music series on YouTube and playing online streaming shows. She's played iconic venues like Eddie's Attic in Atlanta and the Bluebird Cafe in Nashville, festivals like the Rambello Cruise, Nashville Pride, Ladyfest South, and Falcon Ridge Folk Festival, and fan-hosted house concerts across the United States. Earlier this year, she released an album that was funded on Kickstarter in just 11 hours. That album, Way Down, is about perseverance and hope in hard times. She believes everyone has a story to tell. Juliana Finch won't shut up, and neither should you. In fact, in this episode, we talk about Juliana's response to being told to shut up and sing. At the end of our conversation, you'll hear Nasty Weather, her song that triggered that particular comment. We talk about self-care for artists, online communities, how not to quit, and Juliana's three rules. Friends, she's really cool. Enjoy the episode. Hi, Juliana. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. How did you come to North Carolina? So this is my second time being in North Carolina. I first came here as a college student. And I was in Western North Carolina. I went to Warren Wilson College right out of high school um, through a number of interesting paths. I ended up back in Atlanta, which is where I'm from, for a couple of decades and just came back two years ago to North Carolina to Durham um, because my spouse got a job up here and we had two options and it was North Carolina or Texas. And I said, you're not taking me to Texas. <laughs> so what has it been like for you to settle in here in these past two years? I tell almost everyone I meet that Durham has felt like home faster than any other place I've ever been. I love it. I think it's really interesting to be in a place that's a smaller city than where I'm from, but feels so much more active, like artistically And the food scene is great. And there's always something going on here. I also feel like I can satisfy both sides of my personality where the country mouse and the city mouse (laughs) are both Mm -hmm. happy because I live in an area that's got a lot of trees and some space. But I'm 10 minutes from all of the cultural stuff that's happening downtown. And I love it. So you'll have to tell me a little bit about what a musician's life looks like. How much time over the course of the year do you spend in Durham versus traveling? It depends. This year I have been gone most of the spring and summer. I've been traveling because I had an album come out in the spring. And when you release an album, you have to tour to support it. So I'm not always on tour But when I am, I'm home maybe three or four days a month, Mm. come home, do laundry, pet the dog, and get back in the car. (laughs) Um, So I've been gone for a long time this year, and actually more than I'd like to be in general. Most of the time, I'm out maybe one or two weeks a quarter, 
where I, I like to do short tours and then come home. And then for the most part, I'm working from home or I'm if I'm playing a show, it's something that's in quick driving distance or I can do in one day and I can come back home, do quick weekend trips, which is what I prefer. Some musicians are much more road warrior than I am, but I'm a little bit of a homebody. So mm-hmm. I like to I like to be home and work from home. I also do online shows, which means I can do those from my house, which are great. When I think about writing plays or developing theater pieces, I think about it in terms of the seasons of working. So there's a there's a lengthy kind of percolation or development process that isn't committing to a type of project, but is sort of mulling around and writing down notes and all of that. And then there's a very intense, at least for me, a very intense writing period. Then there's the producing period. And then there's kind of the recovery period. Do you have a similar seasonal setup for the work that you do? I do. And I think it's not conscious. But for me, it tends to be starting from about now, you know, we're recording this in the fall, and going into winter is my more reflective writing time, development time. Last year, we started recording the album in the winter. I love to be in the studio in the winter. So that's the different side of of being a musician is creating the product. And then the tour is when you go out and get to perform it, you know. So, yeah, fall and winter are definitely a great time to, like, nest and reflect and write and work. I prefer to write most of the time. I try to write throughout the year, but it's much harder to do while you're traveling because Mm -hmm. when you're on tour, you're constantly thinking about the next show or two shows ahead of where you are. Meanwhile, you're figuring out the logistics of traveling and it's just not really a great time to, you, you don't have any time to sit still and work. So I need a lot of stillness and reflection time. So, yeah, fall and winter, I tend to do that. And then spring is when travel starts to ramp up a little bit more. Hmm. All right. I want to go back in time a little bit. Before you came to North Carolina, perhaps, even even before that, was there a moment in your life when you realized internally, maybe secretly, that you could really kick ass as a singer-songwriter? Did you have a moment of discovery like that? I'm I'm waiting for that moment. <laughs> <laughs> to happen. I would love to have that moment at some point. I, I've always been a little reluctant about it. And I think it's only in the last couple of years that I've sort of accepted this thing that I do on a professional level. When I was younger and starting to play, my first professional show was when I was 20 years old. And I only did it because other people who had heard me play kind of peer pressured me into mm-hmm. doing it. And then the EP that I released a few years after that was the same thing. People would come to my shows and be like, do you have a CD I can buy? Do you have something I can buy? And I was thinking, oh, maybe I should make one of those. You know, It was never really something that I felt compelled to create beyond just like performing and singing for people. And it wasn't until the, probably the past few years that I really took it. Not that I didn't take it seriously before, but that I accepted that it really was something that I could and should be doing as opposed to people seem to like this I guess I'll do this for a while what happened to make you shift into that I think being in my 30s was a huge shift in general in my life I think being a woman in her 30s means that you get to a place where you care a lot less what people think of you and you're not seeking approval and so now the approval that I seek is my own Mm -hmm. And so when I listen a lot more to myself instead of other people, the things that I'm creating come much more 
honestly from that side of myself instead of trying to create something I think people are going to like. I care a lot less about that. Of course, it's great if they like it Mm -hmm. because then they buy it and then I can survive. But I really am not writing from a place of worrying about what the audience is going to think about it. I think that there is so much of a so much relief that comes with not having to constantly be seeking approval from other people for our work. I'm really interested these days in whether or not we ever actually admit to ourselves as artists that we could be really freaking good at a thing. You know, even I'm a, I'm reluctant to even admit that to myself, mm-hmm. like in my secret heart, let alone be willing to stand up in front of other people and say, hey, I think I might be really good at this. You know what I mean? And that's so strange, especially when you have other people telling you, hey, you're really good at this. I want to give you money. You know, it's, it's such an interesting psychology around this this whole performative idea. I think a lot about the vacillation required of an artist between having the guts to get up and put something that you've made in front of the world. You have to be a little bit arrogant about it. You have to be a little bit audacious to just get up and say, I made a thing and you should look at it. And at the same time, this crippling imposter syndrome that I think most artists I know, we go back and forth between those feelings. And that's really interesting. I'm sure people who aren't artists also feel this, but I think it's a little bit more observable Mm -hmm. (laughs) in the artist because we tend to vacillate through these two things all the time. I mean, sometimes I feel it in the same hour. Yeah, yeah. And it's wild. Yeah, it's sort of like creative whiplash or, mm-hmm. or some kind of bungee jumping kind of thing. You're like, I made a really good thing. I'm a terrible person. People are going to love this. I'll never work again. You know, <laughs> it's really quite a ride. I want to talk ab- about this a little bit more because prior to this interview, I asked you about some topics that you're passionate about. And you said that even beyond the art that you make, you're most passionate about the well-being of artists, which can include work-life balance, mental health, and self-care that is specific to being an artist and creating work. Why is this topic of well-being important to you? I think ever since I was a child, I observed and knew right away that this idea of the starving artist or the mad artist, was BS. Mm. Even the first time I heard it, I heard you know people talk about Vincent van Gogh, you know, and, oh, he's crazy, he cut his ear off. I was like, probably there was other stuff going on, and that's not why he made good art. And I think we spend a lot of time, we as a culture, and even artists buy into this, spend a lot of time thinking that we are supposed to suffer in order to be artists. And I just don't buy into it. And I think too many artists do. And it's part of the reason that we undervalue our work Mm. and let other people undervalue our work and our role in society, which is important. And people are constantly consuming art and there's art everywhere. Can you imagine, you know, movies not existing or people going to a restaurant and there's no music playing in the background or there's no food that looks interesting? Mm. It's just you know, edible, you know, all of everything we do every day has art involved in it. And yet artists are valued a lot less than I think they should be. And I think part of that is this idea that like, you're supposed to be crazy and you're supposed to suffer and starve. Mm -hmm. And if people really believe that artists are supposed to be starving, they're not going to want to pay them. (laughs) Right. 
You know, I've been thinking since you mentioned it about this starving artist kind of archetype. And one of the many issues I have with that is that in that scenario, practicing art diminishes us. Mm. By making our art, by engaging with our art, we're actually making our lives worse. And that is not something that I want to sign up for at all. I don't want to model it. I don't want to promote that idea that if you commit to a life of art making, you're going to suffer and you're going to, everything's going to end horribly for you. But you'll have made good art. Like that's not only is that inaccurate, but who wants to sign up for that? That sounds horrible, especially because most of us experience art making as something that is really generative and enriches our lives. And so why why would we want to push that into the realm of suffering all the time and make it hard just because we're supposed to fulfill this like arch- archetypical life? Um, so what is the alternative to this starving artist? So a well-fed artist. <laughs> I, I think part of it is just destroying the myth in the first place and realizing that people who are healthy and well-balanced and cared for and that means also caring for themselves, are going to make better things. Mm-hmm. When I feel healthy, when I feel like I'm in a good space, that's when I want to write. I don't want to write when I'm stressing out about whether I can pay my bills or do, can I afford to go see the doctor? Am I going to be able to buy groceries? That's not when I want to sit down and write a song. Right. You know. So I think for the art, it starts with the artists themselves, understanding that they really need to be cared for. And part of that is not feeling shame around whether they have a day job, quote unquote, or even a whole career outside of their art. Because this idea, the other myth that's attached to that is this idea that you're not a real, quote unquote, real artist, unless you are doing it all the time, Mm -hmm. and you're doing it full time. And that's just not feasible in our society for a lot of people. Um, Related to that, I know you have a Patreon. Mm -hmm. I have a Patreon. I think the patronage model is a really good place to get back to. I think people are eager. Audiences are eager to support the artists that they like. And being able to do that on a micro level these days, here's a dollar a month. Most people aren't going to miss a dollar a month. And that makes a big difference to a lot of artists. If I have 500 people giving me a dollar a month, that means that I get to pay a couple bills and not worry about those groceries. And it's huge. Right. And the Renaissance happened because of patrons. When we think about the greatest art in our history, it did not happen in a period of starving art or starving artists. It happened because people with money valued art for whatever reason, political gain in some cases, you know, if we're talking about the Renaissance. But still, they elevated artists. Another issue I have. Now I'm starting to think of all the issues that I have. <laughs> many. I have We've, many got issues. Issues. We've got issues. Um, another issue I have with this starving artist idea is because I, I think it narrows the scope of the art that we can produce. So when I think of the times in my life when I've been really broke and I've been really depressed and I've been really anxious, I have definitely used art to process that. And I think I've made some really quality things. But I don't just want to make that kind of art. I want to make art across the spectrum of my emotions. I want to make joyous art. I want to make art that reaches out to other people and is transformative and happy and and, and all of the things. And so I think we box ourselves in by only allowing suffering to accompany the art that we make. And that that doesn't seem to add to our communities in a way that I know we all want to do. 
that's a great point. And I think art has to reflect the breadth of human experience. And therefore, you have to open yourself up to the breadth of human experience as an artist. And you have to be willing to experience joy. Mm. Oh, Who yes. knew that would be a challenge? I right? know. It is. Isn't that funny? <laughs> All right. I read something that you wrote. And you, you wrote, I've been writing and performing for almost two decades. In that time, I've never quit even when I wanted to. Why would you want to quit? Why have you wanted to quit? I think it does get hard when you have to rely on an audience receiving something that you're making. And if it doesn't feel fast enough or big enough or the thing that you create doesn't match the big picture in your head. I think all artists are idealists and we have an ideal mm. version of the thing we want to make in our head, and it's very hard to make it match what happens in reality. And when you're constantly bumping up against that, that creates stress. Um, also, every time every time you create something really big, or every time I create something really big, there is a kind of letdown period mm -hmm. afterward, and the cycle, emotional cycle attached to it. And sometimes it's just like, I don't want to do this anymore, you know. And for me, I had to learn that I actually don't want to be on the road all the time either. And that was something that when I was really struggling financially, you have to play a lot of shows you don't want to play. You have to take work you don't want to take. And that part gets more frustrating. So it wasn't that I wanted to quit making work. It was that I wanted to quit gigs. Mm. I wanted to quit the struggle part. I would always write a song or write a screenplay or write a poem in my house alone probably for the rest of my life and that's not that's not something that I choose but deciding to go out there and try to make money from it and do it professionally I think is the harder leap mm -hmm. so how did you not quit how did you keep going this one I can't take credit for myself <laughs> because this happens not to be too woo but this really happens every single time I have decided I don't want to do it anymore. I've gotten some kind of feedback from an audience member or a fan or email or fan mail actually in the mail or something that has told me about how something I made affected someone and changed their life or saved their life. And so that relationship is what you want, I think, as an artist. You want to have that connection. We're not just shouting into the ether, mm -hmm. you know. And that relationship creates a kind of responsibility for me where I feel like, okay, those people don't want me to quit. Those people need me. Mm. So I'm going to keep doing it. And, and knowing that it is reaching somebody because usually I want to quit when I feel like I'm not reaching anybody. And so every single time I've wanted to quit, even that same day, sometimes that same hour, I get an email from somebody or somebody buys my entire collection on Bandcamp or something like that. And I'm like, okay, all right, that's a little message that I'm going to listen to, or I can I can do it for another six months. Right. And by then, I don't want to quit anymore. <laughs> if I commit to just a little longer, it usually passes. Yeah. I heard something on a podcast this morning, actually, about how we should measure our progress in inches, not in miles. And I think, for me, that's something that I, if I'm really feeling stuck it's about encouraging myself just to take the next step, just to commit to doing it. It's almost a day-to-day, hour-to-hour kind of thing sometimes. It's like, all right, well, 
tomorrow I'll stop doing this entirely, but today I'm going to spend 15 minutes <laughs> working on this thing. <laughs> and when, when I can't show up for myself, I what you're talking about I think is a little bit about showing up for other people. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, I've I've now formed this relationship, formed this connection with these other folks who are expecting something from me, and I can do this for them even if I can't do it for myself in this moment until I come back around. Yeah. yeah. And and we do. We know we always come back around. For me, it's never been a permanent feeling. It's always been fleeting. Um, and I love that you also mentioned, just to segue a little bit, the 15 minutes mm-hmm. thing, because I do think we need to make ourselves one of the tricks to make ourselves work is to is to break it down into small pieces and to say, I'm going to show up to the page and I only have to do 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. Every time I've done that, I've written for an hour or two hours. It's just telling yourself it's not an insurmountable task and showing up and saying, I only have to do this much. Do you have other tricks that work for you to keep you going in this in the creative mode? I have to trick myself all the time. <laughs> I can't remember. Who's the, there's a famous writer that said, you know, somebody asked him if he enjoyed writing and he said he enjoyed having written. Yes. I can't remember who it was, so I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sure sure somebody is yelling at the podcast right now. Um, But yeah, the actual process of like making yourself do it, you do kind of have to trick yourself. Oh, yeah. One of the things that's important to me is I have dedicated workspace in my house because I do work from home. And for me, it's so easy to do literally every chore that needs to get done or watch all of Netflix (laughs) instead of doing what I should be doing. So I go to work. I go to my office in the morning and actually show up and write. And I close the door. Mm-hmm. And also when I'm done with work for the day, I close the door. It's very hard to compartmentalize as an artist. I think it bleeds into every part of your life. And it is important for me to have time to do other things also. And I also usually write in the morning. And I used to be kind of the night owl, mm-hmm. you know, burn the candle at both ends, stay up all night and write tortured poetry, the sort of stereotypical thing. And I had a songwriting teacher very early on who had us we were at a retreat for a week and she had us write in the morning she said you're not allowed to write at night just for this week I want you to try it and it's only a week and if you hate it at the end of the week you don't ever have to do it again and that was 16 years ago and I've been writing in the morning ever since then why did she suggest mornings because her her feeling was when you wake up in the morning A lot of times you've had a dream that might be inspiring for something to write, but also your brain is just waking up and you are still in that sort of in-between space. And for me, in my experience, it's that my internal editor is not awake yet because he likes to sleep in. So (laughs) I can get a jump on that. Yeah, I can get a jump on that critical voice and not worry so much. And I feel really fresh and energized in the morning in a way that, I don't at night. I'm exhausted. And for me, another benefit of it is that um, what I say to myself is output before input. So I try not to get on social media. I try not to take in NPR or the radio shows or television before I've done my writing for the day. So before I'm taking in information from the world and taking in other stuff, I try to get something out of me. And then I can go do what I want to do in the morning. But if I get wrapped up in other stuff too early in the day, suddenly I've been on Facebook for three hours mm-hmm. and I've done nothing. So it's also just that and making sure that, that if I do it first thing in the morning, it gets done. It's my priority. I'm saying this is the most important thing that I'm doing today. So I'm doing it first. 
Well, coffee first, <laughs> then. <laughs> They're linked. They're joined. Coffee, right. then writing. <laughs> so take us through the birth of a song. Do you start with free writing? How, how does it go? You tell us. It's a little bit different every time. I would say that I journal a lot. I journal every day. Sometimes the writing that I'm doing when I show up is just reflection and, and just journaling instead of working on a specific piece. And something will come out of that that I want to write about, or I'll see that there's a recurring theme. And when I'm working on a song specifically, I'll just, I take my guitar out and I pace around my office. I always write standing up. I actually had to create a standing desk in my office so I wouldn't have to bend. I realized I was always bending down to write and trying not to hit my guitar on something. (laughs) And finally it was like, oh, I could just put the desk where my hands are instead of the other way around. So I have a setup that I have a little recording setup and I have my computer and my notebooks out and I will just pace around the office and play with a chord progression that I think sounds interesting and maybe sing a melody to myself that's usually half nonsense words, half lyrics to start out. And typically the chorus will come first for me, though sometimes I'm, I realize that something I've written is actually the last verse of the song and I need to come back and fill it back in. But once I have a little bit of a structure of what I want the verses to sound like and what I want the chorus to sound like, I usually will put the instrument away and then just sit and write with it and sit and work with it um, on the computer and get the lyrics out. I, I think of myself much more as a lyricist than a musician. Hmm. And the music part is is the tool that I use for that. Um, so yeah, and then I just will sing it to myself for days and hammer it out until I feel like it's sort of done. If it doesn't come super easily, you know, if, if it's a week or two and the thing hasn't really come together, I'll have to put it away for a while. I find that if you try to headbutt something into existence, it doesn't really come out as well as you want it to. So there are times that I put snippets of songs away for a year or two years and then come back to it. There are songs on my most recent album that I started three years ago that didn't get finished until last year. So I think being willing to be flexible in the process and put it away and come back. I have lots of little bits here and there and tons of files on my computer with different starts of songs that aren't finished. And if I'm wanting to work on something and I don't know what to work on, I look through those Mm -hmm. and I find a snippet from a few years ago and say, oh, let me see what happens with this for a while. It seems like you have an attitude of abundance towards your ideas. So you know that new ideas will come, new words will come. And part of this might be because you have a writing practice that you commit to. So you know that every day you're going to be generating new work. But I think that people have a reluctance to let go of something that they can't figure out, partially because they don't think they can come up with the next thing. But if we trust the fact that there is more, there will always be more, and maybe the time is not right for this particular idea, it makes things a lot easier. And again, there's less suffering (laughs) associated with it. Absolutely. And I think sometimes that piece that you're stuck on is actually a cork. It's in the way of the other stuff. Mm. And the longer you stay stuck on that thing, you're not making room for the other stuff to come out. So if you can just finish a first draft of it and be happy with it being, you know, as Anne Lamott says, a shitty first draft, Mm -hmm. maybe then you can set it aside for a while and that other stuff can flow. Um, I think a lot of times writer's block is actually fear 
like you say, fear of not having other ideas or fear of being terrible, fear of being a failure, um, fear that you're not as good a writer as you think you are. I don't think writer's block as a thing actually exists. Right. Let's talk about your newest album. The title of it is Way Down and was released this spring in Mm -hmm. 2018. You describe this as much more obviously feminist than your previous work. How did that shift come about? I think in the last couple of years, women are kind of done. <laughs> we're just done. And, and we're also done pretending that we're not powerful for the comfort of other people. Mm. And as I mentioned much earlier in the podcast, being in my 30s has been a place where I don't care as much about approval. And that includes the approval of people who may have been fans of mine of a specific type of work that I was doing because I didn't feel like I was fully expressing myself. Um, Not that I'm not proud of the songs that I made before, but every artist grows and and as we age, our experience changes. And for me, this is a much more introspective album. It's much more vulnerable for me in a lot of ways. And also because it's much more me, it is more feminist and it's more blatantly feminist. I think in the folk music scene, there there obviously is a long history of protest songs and political songs, but there's also this idea that that we're supposed to be pleasant, mm-hmm. <laughs> and you know it's a lot less edgy than rock and roll tends to be. This album also is a lot more. There's a lot more sort of rock elements and pop elements than there have been in previous things, because I'm just exploring different things and exploring ways of expressing myself. So. The stories that I was really drawn to, I noticed about halfway through writing the album that they all kind of had a theme around powerful women. Whether it was the protest song that I wrote, there's a song called Nasty Weather that is about the Women's March, or it's a song about witches meeting down by the river, you know, which is the last song that I wrote for the album, or it's a song about a shape-shifting seal woman, which is... Uh, the Seal Wife is a song I wrote about Celtic mythology. They all are about this idea of women claiming space. And that was just what I needed to say. How has, how has that been received? Really well. It's, my, it's the album that's done the best so far of all of my albums. And for me, that's a kind of confirmation of something that I've suspected for a long time, which is that you have to be as truthful as you can be when you're putting work out there without being afraid that there won't be an audience because the audience you find may not, may not be the one that you have right now, but it's the one who needs you and who needs that work. And I think I found people through this work that would not have otherwise listened to things. And it's really fun to perform. I just love these songs. Your new stuff is always your favorite stuff. Right, right. I don't know which thing came first here. If you were already working on your album when this happened or the story that we're about ready to talk about happened first and then was the instigator for some of the songs. But would you tell us the shut up and sing story, please? (laughs) Yes. So I had just written Nasty Weather, which is on the album, but this is before I was working on the album. And I do this thing called the Bedhead Music Series where I get up first thing in the morning, 
and my hair is crazy and I don't put makeup on and I make a YouTube video of a song. And if I've just written a song, it might be a brand new one or it might be a cover song. And so I had been really inspired by hundreds of thousands of women showing up for these marches and had seen some really great signs. I'd gone to the Women's March in Raleigh and I'd seen some really beautiful signs that people had made. And it had been a long time since I'd just seen that kind of turnout for any protest or anything. And this sense of togetherness was really amazing. And so the song just all came out and I wrote it really fast. I wrote it in a couple of hours and I put it up online. And I got a YouTube comment from someone who told me that I should shut up and sing. Do you know who this person is? No. Or was some random troll person? Random fan. Random fan. Well, probably not a fan. Random (laughs) troll person. I imagine it was someone who was probably looking for, like, hashtags about the Women's March or things about the Women's March because that's what people do. And um, I burst out laughing in my house. I thought it was hilarious that someone would take the time to look for something like that and then make a comment like, shut up and sing. On a couple of levels, like... That's not what art is for. And there's this sentiment that, like, entertainers, quote unquote, should just keep their opinions to themselves. But people don't tell doctors not to have opinions about politics. Mm -hmm. You know, why is it that we are supposed to? Because we have a platform and they're scared Mm. (laughs) of it. You know, there's some power, power behind being able to speak to lots of people and communicate on a wider level. But this idea that art is purely for entertainment is false. And I think even the people who think that's what they think about art, if you really get down to it, they still have a song that they remember, you know, kissing their first love to or, you know, a movie that changed their life. I think people, those people don't realize, you know, that art is a lot more than just entertainment. Mm -hmm. And so... What I said to him before I deleted the comment, I sent him a message back. and I said, shutting up and singing are opposites of one another. So, yeah, that's the shut up and sing story. And it did galvanize me. It had the opposite effect I think he wanted because it made me want to be louder. Right. So the shaming didn't work. No. I actually we, I did a Kickstarter for the album. And one of the things we did is a set of enamel pins. And we decided that one of them, we named the Kickstarter, you have to give the Kickstarter title. Instead of Juliana's new album, we called it Juliana Finch Will Not Shut Up. And I made an enamel, enamel pin of a megaphone that says, I will not shut up. And that was our best-selling one because people are feeling the same way about mm-hmm. trying to be silenced. And we're not going to. We're not going to shut up. Mm-hmm. One of the many things I admire about you is how you formed such a strong online community and that you have created for yourself a way of performing your work that seems to be best suited uh, to your lifestyle and the way you want to perform. So you have the Bedhead Brigade, you have a substantial number of patrons on Patreon, and your recent Kickstarter was incredibly well-funded, and you've also leaned into performing house concerts more frequently for your fans as a way of increasing your following. So what led you to make these types of decisions when forming your community? I think I've always been someone who is interested in community and creating community. When I was younger, I had a live journal. I'm sure some of you had live journal. Out there. I don't know what that is. It is an online journaling platform that now, it, it's for a while it was 
really incredible. It became a social network also. I have friends in real life that I met through this online forum. So I used to write a journal. I used to write a blog. And you can have friends on there just like you can on Facebook now. But it was long form. Everybody's writing longer journal posts. And I had a live journal for about 10 years. And that is a type of community that we were building and still have. And this idea that online communities aren't real somehow was debunked very early for me because I became very close with people in in all sorts of countries and states and different places. And we were sharing very intimate details about our lives in this closed forum. And creating community online is something that just came naturally to me. And I, and I realized that they, this is a real community. Online is not different from the real world. It's part of the real world. And that's always been fascinating to me. So creating community on the internet is interesting to me in the first place. With house concerts, it's also about being able to create a sustainable life. And it's much harder to play in venues these days to just show up and Playing a music venue, it's expensive, and touring is expensive, and so it works out really well. But also there's a, an intimacy that you don't get at a venue. I get to have dinner with my hosts who might be really big fans, and so that's special for them. It's also special for me, and we spend time together. Nobody has to pay for parking. There's no drink <laughs> minimum. You know, It's a really good situation, and it also is very heartwarming. It's gratifying, I think, on both, both ends, mm-hmm. and people – get to spend a little extra time with the artist in a way that they might not in a typical venue where they just pay for a ticket, sit down, and then leave afterwards. We really spend a lot of time talking to each other, and they get a lot of behind-the-music kind of stuff. And for me, I've always balked at the traditional ideas of what I'm supposed to do to be an artist. I would have a little bit of a problem with authority, (laughs) a little bit of a rebel, but... The path that I was supposed to take as a musician, specifically as a female musician, you know, in the late 90s and early 2000s, I didn't like that path. I didn't like the expectations around that. Which were what? I had to be uh, a certain – I had to look a certain type of way. I had to want to play a certain type of music. I had to play gigs that were really not gratifying and play cover songs for totally unappreciative people for hours and hours Mm -hmm. for beer. Like, these are just things that I never wanted to do. And so that created a situation where I had to find ways to make my own work. And I feel lucky that I was a little bit ahead of the necessity for that. I think now it's necessary for artists to create their own work. We can't wait for labels. We can't wait for producers. We can't wait for studios to tell us that it's okay for us to be artists and to make our art. We have to make our own work. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I feel lucky that I was a little bit ahead of that because the transition is not as rough. I see a lot of musician friends of mine that are having a really hard time because they were chasing that label dream for a long time. And now it's just not possible. Even the wonderful small labels, there's still some great labels out there. They're just not able to do the, the level of promotion and support and distribution that they used to be able to do. The, the money is just not there. The whole market is changing. Mm-hmm. So we have to be creative in the way we make our career also, not just in the work that we're creating. So we have talked about your creative process. How do you manage your online community and your fan base? Because does it take a lot of time? It does take a lot of time. It does take a lot of time. And I had also decided a long time ago that I would never have anybody tweet for me 
or do my Facebook posts for me unless it was something very basic like there's a show on this day. You know, sometimes I have a friend who helps me with some tour managing stuff and sometimes she'll put those out for me. But for the most part, I've always really wanted to be the one talking to my fans directly. And it does take a lot of time, but also that is something that's a priority for me personally. It doesn't have to be a priority for every person. And so while it is a big part of my work, it's a part I really enjoy. Mm -hmm. I enjoy talking to people. I enjoy writing journal posts for my Patreon supporters. I feel like, you know, we're a little family. So that part is really fun for me. I do have to be careful not to get sucked into social media too much because the work does need to get done. The creative work needs to get done. But... I really love letting people in on the process and letting them be part of this journey with me because they're the reason I'm able to do it. And do you feel like if people understand your process and you as a person, they enjoy your music more or they feel more connected to it? Absolutely. Absolutely. I also think it helps with my personal mission of sort of demystifying this idea of the creative process and going back to the starving artist thing of realizing, you know, another part of that is this idea that creativity is a talent as opposed to a skill and that what I do is just an innate, you know, part of the way people can devalue art is by thinking that it's not work. Right. And by letting people into what I'm actually doing and how I do work every day, I think they... These are already the people who are valuing it because they're my patrons, you know, for the most part. But it does help them understand, like, wow, this is this is a lot of work. And they continue to value it in the way that I value it. And I think they understand other artists that they love as well. You know, if they if they see me doing this and some of the other artists that they support on Patreon, they probably can extend that out right. to understand that all of the art they consume requires a lot of work and a lot of skill and dedication. Right. I'd like to close here with your three rules and they are do good work be generous and don't quit how did you come up with these and how have they served you these rules have come to me through years of trying to live as an artist successfully but I noticed after a while that I had become somebody that young songwriters were asking advice of, or young creative people, young writers. And first of all, I was totally shocked by that because, you know, at some point you're like, oh, I'm the grown up now. <laughs> Wait a minute. I'm right? supposed to be giving <laughs> advice. I'm still looking for advice, you know. But I found through the process of doing interviews and talking with people and giving advice to younger writers or less experienced writers, the age doesn't actually matter when you're, you can start whenever, start now. Um <laughs> that my advice kind of boiled down to the same types of things over and over again. And so I wanted to come up with the shortest possible way to say that. And I looked through a lot of my old interviews and a lot of things I had written to figure that out. And so I realized that they fall under these th three categories. So do good work is the first one. And that just means study your craft, practice your craft, decide that you can always be better you know, don't stop working just because you've gotten to a place. You know, actors are always taking acting classes, even after they're professional actors. Dancers are always dancing. You know, writers write. This is what you do. You have to do the work. And that also means consuming work by people who are not the same type of artist as you. I love to go to art museums. I like to go, mm -hmm. you know, see theater and see dance just because it gets me out of my little 
bubble. You don't just consume the thing that you're doing. You have to like take in the world. And that makes your work better. So constantly be trying to improve your work. Do good work. The second one is be generous. Because competition destroys artistic communities. And if a new artist is asking you for advice, within your own personal boundaries, give as much of that as you can for free and be generous with it. Obviously, if something's taking a ton of your time and energy, you know, it's fair to ask for some kind of exchange there. But in as much as you can, be generous with your time, with your energy, with your advice to new artists. And the last one is don't quit, which we talked about a little bit earlier. Like, you're going to want to. There's going to be those times that it sucks being an artist and it doesn't feel great all the time. But just make the commitment to the work and decide that you're going to stick it out. Thank you so much. You are an inspiration. You have a gorgeous voice. I love your music. And I can't wait to see what's next for you. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. This was great, Hammer. You got work.